3, starting in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked about at those who sat around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now in verse, uh, excuse me, in chapter 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So as he got into the boat and sat in on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Another seed fell along rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside everything is a parable, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And then they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on good soil and are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Pray with me, please. Father God, we thank you for your word, God, and I pray today as your word goes out that your spirit will move hearts, will make us sensitive to you speaking through your word to us, God. I pray that you will allow us to respond accordingly to this passage today and the weight of it. And Father God, I pray that you will continue to conform us to your image, make us more and more like Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. It was the end of 1985, early 1986, and something big was about to happen. Of course, I wasn't alive at this time, so I, you know, I didn't see it personally. That's a joke. Um, I was in high school, and, uh, and anybody know what was going on at that point, the end of 85, 86, something rare that was getting ready to happen? Anybody science, science in here, science people? All right, so it was something called Halley's Comet, all right? Halley's Comet was coming, and it was a big deal. In fact, uh, 
cable news, 24-hour cable news, even though it's like the standard today, that was something pretty new at that point. But cable news was running it, the whole merchandising. Um, it was just everywhere. You couldn't go to any stores in, in any place where you didn't see something about Halley's Comet at this point. It was on the front of the magazines, the newspapers, everything was going on. But the problem was that when people actually went out to see this, and those of you who are at least my age, and maybe you recall this at some level, went out to see Halley's Comet, we really didn't have a good opportunity to see it. Because of the positioning of the sun, Halley's Comet was mostly blocked. So most people missed their opportunity. So if you were alive during that time and you missed your opportunities, no worries. You'll get another chance in 2061, all right? So hang in there. It'll still be coming back around. But this made me think about the, the, the fact that Jesus, when he came to earth, and when he revealed himself and began to say who he was, his position as the son blocked people from seeing what was truly going on and truly receiving him. You see, we talked about this week after week. They were expecting a conquering king coming in a blaze of glory. But what did they get instead? They got a, a suffering servant. A servant. When God invaded our world, when God invaded his world, and he came to us, he did not come as a king, and as most would think, he would come. He didn't explode onto the world stage. He came as a servant. And what most people could never imagine, and then Jesus shows us today, that the kingdom is more like this farmer sowing a seed than it is a king exploding onto the scene. And we're going to look at this parable that Chanel read, and we're going to talk about it. But I want us to think about how the people responded during that time, but we need to make sure we ask ourselves, how are we responding to the words of Christ? We talked a lot about some religious group, the moral police, during that time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. And these people saw Jesus as a threat to be eliminated. Why did they want to eliminate Jesus? He was doing great things, right? He was doing incredible miracles, but... He was guilty of blasphemy. He was guilty of claiming to be the son of God. He said he had authority over the law of God. He claimed he could forgive people's sins. They wanted him dead. And we saw last week that even Jesus' own family, his brothers, we know his mother got it because an angel appeared to her. But his brothers, they thought he was crazy. His sisters thought he was crazy, delusional. They thought he was putting himself in danger, and last week we actually saw that they were planning, they were making, uh, strategizing how to come and forcibly intervene and take him away back home and save him from himself and save him from the dangers of the religious leaders. We looked at Mark uh, 3.21 last week, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind, he's out of his mind. And so today in the, in the text... At the end of chapter 3, his family actually, now they've arrived in Capernaum. They're going to execute the plan that they were making here. And look what happens. They're standing there, his mother and his brothers, they're outside. And they call to him, and the crowds are all gathered around. They can't get to him, and so they send word. And the word goes to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answers them, who are my mother and who, who are my brothers? 
And looking about at those who were around him, those who were taking it in, the disciples there, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus' point here was that only relationships that really matter eternally are not the physical ones, but the spiritual ones. His spiritual family is those who have faith in him. His spiritual family is those who have faith in him. So, so get the picture here. Jesus' own biological family, they think he's crazy. They want to rescue him from his insanity. Yet you have these disciples who had shockingly left their livelihoods, left everything to follow the one who claims to be the Messiah. So biological brothers, sisters, don't get it. These guys who gave up everything, they get it. And so we're not brought into the family of God, the kingdom of God, by physical relationships, but by faith in Jesus, which leads to humble obedience. Faith in Jesus, which leads to humble obedience. And if you're a regular here at Grace, I sure hope that you get that. That you don't think in some way, shape, or form because your children are in a Christian home that they automatically get a pass in. That they automatically get into the kingdom. They automatically have a relationship with Jesus. And so that's why we as parents are intentional at preaching the word, giving them the word, allowing them to see Jesus so that God might awaken their heart and one day that they will see Jesus, put their faith in Jesus. But just being in proximity to somebody who believes and being in the same home with somebody who believes doesn't make you a believer. And I think it's no accident that Mark, as he's putting these stories together, and we're seeing this as fast action, one thing after another, that he, by no accident, puts the following parable at this moment to speak to this issue here. And so in chapter 4, he jumps into the parable. We see at the beginning here that he begins to teach by the sea. This large crowd again has gathered about him as it always has. Again, he gets into a boat to separate himself because the crowd keeps pushing in, pushing in. So he needs room so he can do the main thing we talked about, which is to teach the word, to announce the kingdom was coming. And he was teaching many things. And it says he was teaching them in parables to the crowd. And so we talked about the crowd, many superficial disciples, as we'll see as we move toward the cross. And he's preaching in parables. He's teaching in parables. And we talked about this. The, parallel, uh, the parable is a parallel. It's an extended analogy or story where something fictional represents something real. So Jesus uses this parable, this story, this, these fictional accounts, to point toward one specific, usually one specific spiritual truth. And so we have to be careful as we read the parables that we don't try to put meaning onto every little aspect of, of the parable. And throughout history, Christians have been guilty of that, teachers have been guilty of that, because typically Jesus was trying to drive one main point home. And what's unique about this parable that he's given, which we call the parable of the sowers, which really is the parable of the soils, this is a foundational parable. And it, it's, it's, it's important that we get this parable, and it's important for his first century hearers to get this parable, before he began to teach other parables to them. Look down, skip down in your text to verses 10 through 13, and look at this, and look at why. He says, And when he was alone, and those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, 
so that, that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Verse 13, and he said to them, do, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So in this little section here, we see two very important and critical truths that we have to get. The first one is, as I said, this parable is key to all the other parables. As opposed to the other parables, this parable does not describe the kingdom of God, as all the other parables do. Rather, this describes the condition of the hearer. Thus why I said, this is not the parable of the sower, it's the parable of the soils. And so Jesus is going to describe people's spiritual condition as they hear the word of God being spoken, as they hear his words being given. And then the second thing, which may kind of throw a little bit of cold water on us here this morning, Jesus did not want everyone to understand. Jesus did not want everyone to understand. Why not? Does Jesus not want, does he not want everyone to get the message? Does he not want everyone to understand? Well, yes and no. Let me, let me explain. The first thing we need to see is that Jesus is speaking these words, verse, verse 12. Those words are from Isaiah, and he's speaking them into his present context, and he's saying that this teaching of these parables is both about, get this, it's both about grace and it's also about judgment. Grace and judgment. It's a grace to those who will hear it and those who will receive it because as Jesus spoke these parables and he interpreted those for his own, he opened up to his followers the deep secrets of the kingdom of God. And so it was a grace, and he explained it to them. And that's critically important for us today also because we may think in our wisdom that we can learn what really matters in life through personal experience or through the school of hard knocks or just through enough research and study that we can get there and we can get it. But what really, really matters in life, what we really need to get in life, is only received through divine revelation. It must be through God's grace. It must be through God's grace. And so therefore, we humble ourselves before God. Because it's him, he's the giver, his spirit's the one that initiates, and we receive at his leisure and it's his grace. And yet at the same time, Jesus says these parables are a judgment to those who stood against him, those who rejected him as the Messiah, those who mocked him, his self-declaration, questioning the preaching of his gospel. And so what he says is, look, if you're really paying attention you know, listen, this is not for you. I'm speaking in riddles to you. Those who are not really understand who I am. And so for us, we may be thinking here, you know, I don't get it. Truthfully, does it make a difference then how I respond? If Jesus is sovereign and he chooses who's going to hear and who's not going to hear, then what's the purpose? What, what's, it, what's it about? Well, if that's true, then if we conclude that and we say that and we check out at this point, then we have to say, well, the rest of this parable doesn't really matter because it's about the hearers. And so, therefore, what, what Jesus says really doesn't make any difference at all. Well, the truth is there's this balance. There's a balance here that exists. We have the responsibility for the way that we receive God's word. We have a responsibility, and he's going to show this. We have a responsibility for that. 
And so as he launches into this parable, those who, remember we talked about last week, falling on the hills of those who blasphemed, those who were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, committed the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, those people, they, they were too far gone. They, they were cynics. They had rejected Jesus. And so Jesus said, look, your, your, your destination is damnation. But those who have ears to hear, I need you to listen up, pay attention. Those who want to hear truth, who open your heart. And so he starts off by listen, listen. And that's not just, hey, pay attention. That's open your heart to the message. And so he says, a sower went out to sow. And so here's the picture during that time. A farmer would have a bag of seed on his hip and he'd reach into the bag. He would begin to throw out the seed as he walked along through the field and he would just toss it out, unlike farming would be today. And so as we read that, picture that sower just sowing the seed. And so let's read through the parable once again, verse 4 through 9. And so as the sower sowed the seed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up. But since it had no depth of soil, when the sun came out and scorched it, it had no roots, and it just withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it, and so the seed yielded no grain. And then finally, the other seed fell on good soil, and it produced grain growing into 60, 30, 60, and 100-fold. And then he kind of bookends it. Look, you who have ears to hear, listen up and hear. Open your heart. Be receptive. Listen to what I'm saying. And so we see Jesus he gives these four different types of soils. And then he gives, in starting in verse 14, he gives the interpretation to each one of those things. And so what we're going to do is we're going to line it up in a parallel fashion here. So you'll see on the left, the par- uh, the, the, actually the parable. And then on the right side, you will see Jesus' interpretation. And so the first one is the footpath. The, the, the seed lands upon the footpath. This is hard ground. People are walking on it. They're trampling on it. And what happens? It just lays there. It's perfect for birds to come by and just get it gathered up and devour it. And so the disciples are saying, okay, Jesus, tell us, what does that mean? We want to know the secrets of the kingdom. Jesus says, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, the word is going out, God's word, the word of the kingdom, Jesus is preaching. And when they hear it, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so do you see what he's saying here? He's saying something very significant, something so important that we're doing an entire Life Prep U class on this, spiritual warfare. What he's saying is, every time the word is taught, every time it's proclaimed, what takes place next is spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. Think about that. Do you believe that? As you're sitting here today and God's word is going out, that there is a spiritual battle that's taking place in your heart. There's spiritual war that's taking place in your heart. And Scripture, Jesus is showing us that even though maybe you've been in church a thousand times throughout your life, maybe you have a Bible on every, in every room at your house, your, your kids go to Awana and learn Scripture, on your Bible you can pull up a hundred different versions of the Bible. It's all around us. Yet, we can sit here and listen and never hear by our heart. Because there's a spiritual war going on, 
And Satan snatches up your heart, snatches up your attention, snatches up the fact that you don't need this. John, this is not necessary. Don't take this too seriously. And he steals the truth away. I told you before that I went to a a Bible college. And when I went to Bible college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with life. I wasn't sure what I did major in. in. So after a short period of time of being undeclared, I opted for psychology. And uh, don't be fearful. All right, I just know enough to make me dangerous. All right, I I know nothing about psychology um, other than, than, than most of us are crazy, right? And and, and, and But at a Christian college, we were required to get a major also in biblical studies. So I don't care what degree you were getting, you also walked away with a degree in biblical studies, which at the time, I, you know, even though I, I did love Jesus at some level, like some of you who, you know, you're like, oh, I love the world, I love Jesus, I'm not sure really. And, and, and a lot of days I felt like I really loved Jesus, and some days my actions showed that I just loved the world. And so I questioned, why am I taking all these classes, these Bible classes a lot of times? And what happened was I found myself having these little discussions in my head, you know, like we do, and, and, and said, okay, I don't need to have a quiet time because I, get, I have Bible class, right? I, I mean, I go to Bible. I, sometimes I have two Bible classes a day. So why do I need to spend time with Jesus when, you know, I've already kind of checked it off my list. We went through like several th- chapters today in, in class. And you see what happened? There's this battle that's going on. It goes on, it went on in my heart, it goes on in your heart, where Satan wants you to negate his Jesus' words, negate the power of Scripture. Act like that it doesn't matter, because it's all around you. And that was the danger in Bible college. If you went to Bible college, you, you can relate to that, that we had chapels. And so, I, you, know, do, you know, it became just second nature that I just heard the stuff all the time, and I didn't take it seriously. Evil is real. The battle is real. Sin hardens our heart so we can't hear the word. And the enemy is real. And he has agents who are doing whatever they can right now to keep people separated from the life-changing power of God's word. That is not, thus saith John Woodrum. I say it all the time. I'm the mailman. That's, thus saith Jesus And that seems hard for me even to comprehend because really there's a spiritual battle going on. We trust God's word. We trust the words of Jesus that he's saying is true. You know, and the thing is, one day we will all realize this is true. We have have no choice, right? We're we're going to die. If Jesus doesn't return, we're going to die. We're going to stand before God. And it's all going to make sense to us. It's all going to be, wow, this was reality. Wow, I really missed it. And even if you're a believer, a strong believer, I think we're still going to be startled by the reality of seeing God face to face. And I think there will be some regret at the beginning that we didn't spend more of our life for God's kingdom purposes versus the trivial things we spend them on. Praise God that he says he'll wipe away all tears from our eyes, that we won't carry that guilt through eternity. Because of Jesus. That's the only reason we, we'll be there in the first place. It's because of Jesus and what he did. But there's a battle taking place. And so if we really get that, 
we're going to enter this room, we're going to open the word with a little different mentality. Because Satan, you know what, he doesn't come to us and say, uh, boogeyman, here I am, I'm, I'm here to get you. He's, what's the scripture say? He's the angel of light. He comes masquerading as a lot of different things. He masquerades as entertaining things that we choose instead of reading our Bible and spending time with God. It's a good show. It's a moral show. It's, you, know, I, you know, I just find the Bible's boring. You know, I just don't like to read the Bible. Or, you know, I'm thinking about next week and all the stuff I have to do for work right now. You know, and I've got to get things in place. And there's, there's tasks and there's assignments I've got to pass out to my employees and things got to get done. And so we make a lot of excuses why we allow our minds to drift and not focus in on God's word, and we never let it penetrate our heart. And I think that Satan, he's tricked many people into accepting some sort of cultural Christianity where we feel pretty good about ourselves, but there's no real life change. There's no real fighting sin. I think about, you know, and sometimes, you know, and I'll talk about this in a minute, sometimes when we're out in sin and we're living for ourselves, it's not a really good place to be as a, as a, as a true Christian because we start to question, and we rightly so should question and examine ourselves, see if we're in the faith. And that's why it's so important that we fight sin, that we don't allow sin just to take root and take over our lives. As the Holy Spirit reveals sin to us, we fight it. We don't just fight it ourselves. And this is one thing I wish I would have gotten a lot earlier as a younger man, is there's lots of other believers who want to be in the foxhole with me to help me fight this fight. I don't have to do it alone. I need the help of my brothers in Christ. And you need your help, the help of brothers and sisters in Christ because left alone in the struggles of your sin and in your selfishness and your pride and in your arrogance, you're going to think that I'll, I'll eventually get this. I'll eventually get on top of this. But God created his people to be there for you. And it took me a long time before I swallowed my pride and said, I need to bring this out into the light. I need some other people to help me in the things that I struggle with. And I encourage you to do that. Don't buy into the lie. Fight sin. Employ every resource that God has made available to you. Prayer, his word, the body of Christ to do this battle together. I think about, I'm going to try to illustrate every one of these soils with with a real-life illustration, but one of our students who uh, was a youth pastor in Dallas, he, he, uh, he had a lot of the exterior look of, as if God was really working into his heart and doing some good things. In fact, when he came and started getting involved in our youth ministry there, um, he was a very talented guy, and he instantly jumped into our praise band after we talked to him and interviewed him. He had the right things to say, very cultural Christian there, Texas, Dallas. You know, it's a Bible belt, too. And, and so he knew all the right things to say. And in order to kind of be involved in the band and be in leadership, and we wanted to move him because he had a great voice, we wanted to move him to the lead singer position. And so I, I said, hey, I really want you to show up during the summer uh, early, you know, for, for a high school student, like 8 o'clock in the summer, and let's do a, a study together. And we were doing A.W. Tozier's The Pursuit of God. All right, This is not light stuff here. This is pretty, pretty meaty stuff that we were doing. And he was there almost every week. He was involved. But you know what happened? Soon after he graduated from high school and his gig, his, his, his show was over, he totally, totally abandoned the faith. Totally abandoned the faith. 
And in fact, some years later, uh, on his Facebook account, he even almost mocked Christianity, mocked faith, basically agnostic. This, can you really believe this stuff? And through subsequent conversations, it really just became apparent that, that it was all about him. It was about him having a place to shine and show his talents and showcase his skills. And he did a pretty good job of really hiding his, his internal struggle there and not accepting God's word and not accepting the change that God wanted to do in his life. And so he would be what I would call this shallow soil, this, this footpath that Satan, this battle, is just not real. The second ground that the seed lands on in verse 5 and 6 is rocky ground. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose and it scorched, and since it had no root, it just withered away. And then we see Jesus' interpretation of verse 16 and 17. He says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. They're like, whoa, this is good stuff. This is great. I haven't heard this before. This is exciting. I like this church thing. There's a lot of people around to make me feel good and, and greet me, and I can build friendships here. And they have no root in themselves, though. They endure for a while. Then when tribulation persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they just, they just fall away. They fall away. And so it's pretty humbling, isn't it? The litmus test for your receptivity to the word is not a spontaneous momentary joy that happens. Another student that I had, his name, uh, well, I won't say his name because uh, he lived in Tallahassee, um, he was very apathetic to the things of God. Um, he, you know, he came to church pretty often to youth group, and he was participating there. But you know, just couldn't couldn't get to his heart. It just was it seemed hard. He had a lot of family issues going on, a lot of stuff going on. But I uh, talked him into one summer going to camp with us. And if you've ever been to a youth camp, you know that just having a week away and just being, you know, praise and worship and preaching, it, it has a pretty profound impact on on you, and it can really move you emotionally. And uh, this was uh, the time, this was quite a while back, this was like when the song Shout to the Lord, anybody remember that song? Was, it's just new and it was coming out, and it was just a really, really just awesome praise song at that time. And, and they, were, they were, had my, the students down several different rows, and we were singing that song one night well into the week, and, and I looked down there, and like he's like kind of lifting his hand, you know? He's like kind of getting, and I'm like shocked. Like I've never seen any kind of response from him like that to the things of God. And he even approached me afterwards, like, Pastor John, almost got me, all right? I almost, like, got into that. But, you know, again, the receptivity of just initially, spontaneously responding momentarily to something is no proof of anything. And the truth is, his life has been a train wreck since then. And I, I, I pray that's not the, this is not the end of the story for him, for sure. God can continue to work, and who knows what might happen in his life. But I know for, for a fact that, I mean, his life has been totally derailed and went into a totally different direction. That response proved nothing. The rocky soil shows that an emotional reaction to God's word proves nothing. True believers persevere. Persevere. That's, that's a key word there. They persevere. And so let's be careful how we judge those who react. 
let's make sure we don't be like, oh, done. My job's here is done because they responded. Good, you know, let's move on to something else, somebody else. Even as parents, and I say this a lot, even with our own kids, when, once they pray a prayer and they put their faith in Jesus, that's not a time to go, it's over, baptism, it's over, I'm out, and, you know, I'm glad they're in. And we never, ever have gospel discussions with them ever again in our lives. Look, we need to continually preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. I mean, the gospel is on every page of Scripture. Do you know that? It's on every page of Scripture. Everything points to Jesus. And so we just continue as they grow and get older, as they reach teenagers, like Harrison just turned 13. I mean, we just... He, today's his birthday, and, and, uh, and, and got another, another teenager around, and so um, we just continue to preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Because it's our job just to spread the seed. And we don't know how it's being received. We don't know. You know, I don't talk a lot, a lot about like what's happening in other churches and other situations around but this one's hard to ignore. And in fact, somebody just talked to me about this just a couple of days ago because of Easter service in their home church that there was this thing of spontaneous baptisms going on. And hear me out here, all right? I'm not criticizing all spontaneous baptism. What that means is that I, at the end of the service, I say, okay, and we have the baptistry set up. All right, if you responded, come up here. Let's baptize you right now if you've put your faith in Jesus. Look, that can be done right. I've actually done that before once here. But here's my caution. That a speaker, somebody who's preaching, somebody who's good at giving words and manipulating people can totally, totally make, elicit an emotional response. Somebody can make a decision and then they hang their hat on something they did. I did that thing. In reality... They had no idea really what they were doing. Their heart was never changed, never moved really truthfully. I, I read this, and, and this is pretty, pretty sad. I read this um, leaked inner church guide for spontaneous baptisms that was given away to volunteers and staff at a big mega church in the United States. And I just want to read this to you that, that, that this, is, this is sad. Fifteen people, volunteers, will sit in the worship experience and be the first ones to move when pastor gives the call. Move intentionally through the highest visibility areas and the longest walk. And then it goes on to say the, the elaborate staging that God explains is how we activate our faith to pull off our part in God's miracle. The spontaneous baptisms are to be done quickly, on average, between 30 and 45 seconds to keep things flowing, the guide suggests. Thinking of, think of it, the changing room, where the people come in and change into their baptismal clothes, which is already there prepared for them, in terms of a NASCAR pit stop. The how-to guide explains. It's quick in and quick out. Cheering volunteers work the doors to usher the traffic of new believers toward the front, and another set preps the convert for baptism. The first people going into the changing rooms have got to be to be people who move quickly. They must be changed and out on stage in a few minutes, it says. Pick young, energetic people, not necessarily the first ones who respond to the call. I don't know about you, but that just really, really turns my stomach. But the truth is, a lot of us who grew up in church, we experience this in some level 
through emotion and, and through manipulation. And we've got to be really careful about that. And I think emotion is important. God wired us emotionally, so I'm not downing emotion. That's an important thing. But emotion always has to follow heart and logical decisions. And should we have emotion? Absolutely. When somebody, we're going to have baptism next week. Three people are going to be baptized. That should be an emotional, exciting experience. But you know what? The three people who have been baptized, or being baptized, their parents have sat down with them and walked them through the gospel, I would say hundreds of times. Have plowed the soil, prepared the soil, talked to them again and again and again. And then on top of that, they're going to come and talk to a pastor as well to just get some extra accountability and solidify that. Because... What we're doing here is, is vital and it's important. And we don't want to base our salvation on something I did in the past. I did that thing. I remember I did that thing. But what, what's going on now presently? What's going on presently? One's present posture, this is worth writing down, one's present posture is better proof of salvation than a past memory. One's present posture is better proof of salvation than a past memory. I want to read this from Pastor J.D. Greer. He says, Here is how many Christians think of getting saved. You realize you're a sinner and you need Jesus to save you, so you approach him and ask, and he says, Yes, writes your name on the Lamb's Book of Life, gives you a certificate of salvation. If you begin to doubt whether or not you're really saved, you go back and replay that moment of your mind of that conversion. He says, There's a couple problems with this. First, many people have a hard time remembering the moment, especially if they're young children. Secondly, the mo- and most importantly, he says, that memory just can't hold up to the actual experience of the Christian life. How can you be convinced you were sorry enough for your sins? Did your life change enough after that point? Did you really understand the gospel way back then? If we rely on a past memory, we're setting ourselves up for rededication after rededication, he adds this, and I would know I got baptized four times myself to prove it. So instead of thinking of assurance of salvation as, as, as that certificate, I, here, here's a way I think parents, this is a great way that you can help your kids think about it. Lolly, come here and help me real quick. Or Lainey, I'm sorry. Lainey, sorry, I called you wrong, wrong, wrong name. Come here, Lainey. Sit right here. It's not a hard job. All right, you got it. You got it. You okay? All right, thanks. Um, and so I want you to imagine it would be more like sitting in a, in a chair. When you first got saved, you confessed Jesus, Savior, and Lord. You sat down in the chair. Later on, when you begin to doubt, you don't need to look back at a memory and say, did I really sit down in that chair? You need just to look down, look at the chair, look down, and see that you're currently sitting there. Your present posture is better proof than a past memory. So where are you resting your weight of, weight of your life? Belief is resting your weight upon Jesus. And so you look down and you say, is my life lining up with Scripture? Is my life bearing fruit? Yes. Well, that's good assurance of salvation. Instead of saying, okay, I remember that time I went forward and I and at that altar call and I gave my life to Jesus. Of course, I haven't set foot in church ever since, but I'm, I'm saved. I'm, I'm a Christian. It's just a scary place to be. As we're going to see from the fourth soil, true believers produce fruit. Thank you. 
Appreciate it. And sorry I called you by your sister's name. And so the Holy Spirit draws us to himself. And so the word goes out. The seed goes out. Your heart begins to feel the conviction. And then you pray and you say, God, I want Jesus. I want his forgiveness. I want his righteousness. I see my sin. I've been living for myself. I've been living for what I want in life. You see, we, we, we can justify by saying, well, I don't do this, I don't do that, and, and look, they're a Christian, and I sure don't do that thing. See, that's what we do rather than saying, I've been living for myself. Look at the pattern of my life. Jesus, I need you as my Lord. I need you as my Savior. I need your forgiveness of sins. I need your transformation. And look, it's not going to be perfect for sure. Remember we said this early on, that whose account of the the gospel is this? Peter's. What did Peter do? He denied Jesus three times. But what did he do afterwards? What did he do? He went out and wept. He was broken, broken over his sin. As opposed to Judas, who had some false guilt. He, He felt guilty and he went out and killed himself for betraying Jesus. You see the difference? You can have some guilt over your sin. But there's a difference between being broken and Jesus restored Peter. And what did Peter do? He turned the world upside down. Turned the world upside down. I told Mitch today that there's a good chance this was going to be probably part one of two parts. When you heard the scripture being read, you're like, oh, we're going to get through all that today, right? But I just want to, I just want to land the plane right here, and then we'll finish the rest of this next week. Is the Holy Spirit convicting your heart? Are you shallow, footpath, spiritual battle, you know, your life shows you don't love Jesus. You don't love the things of God. You like the security of being able to say, I'm going to heaven when I die. But you don't love Jesus. You don't love the life that Jesus is ushering you into or wants to usher you into. Or are you the, the rocky soil that there's times of emotion? You get excited. You're an emotional person. You get like, yes, we're back in church. We're, we're, we're there. All right, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to be in community, we're going to have accountability. And then a short time later, it's back to the old habits and the old way of living. Look, it's a struggle. Nobody's saying that it's not difficult to live for Jesus. It is difficult to live for Jesus. And hardships and persecution, these things come our way and they make us think, God, are are you there? Is this true? Can I trust you? But it's during those moments when there's the hardships and the persecution that drive you beyond your resources and you run to God, not away from God. You run to the cross, not away from the cross. You run to the body of believers, not away from the body of believers. So where's your heart? Where's your response? Next week we'll look at the last two soils. But during the meantime, I encourage you to go back and read this passage 
pray over this passage. Examine your current posture. Is it, I'm out here, but I did that. You know, I was there at one point. Here's your response. Here's your response. Jesus, I love you. I trust you. I believe in you. I'm positioning myself back into your safety of your truth, your word, your cross, your resurrection. I'm embracing this. This is my life. You are my life. That should be our response. Let's pray. Father God, your word is powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. There's just something incredible about the power of this book. It cuts through. It convicts. It restores. It gives hope. It gives conviction. It gives grace. And it brings judgment. And God, I thank you for the hearts in here today that are sensitive the hearts that have been moved. God, may their perseverance, the decisions they make, be the fruit of anything that they are deciding in their minds right now and in their hearts with you right now that they're doing, that it is not just an emotional moment, but it truly is a settled response based upon the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Pray if there's anyone here who needs to talk to an elder or pastor today is. Daniel mentioned that there's pastors, there's elders, there's our wives here that would love to to sit down in a quiet, private place and discuss salvation, discuss response to Jesus. And I pray that you will allow them to take that step of faith and and, and to grab someone today and and just ask for prayer and, and wisdom and discussion. God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. In his name we pray, amen.